0: Well, uh, let's uh, let's take our Bibles together, and we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter nine, Isaiah chapter nine, verses one through seven for our text this morning. Five seventy three, if you use the Church Bible, a classic text that's often read and pondered at this time of year, prophetic word about the Christ and His coming. Isaiah chapter 9, 1 through 7. Let's give our attention to God's word as it is read. I encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, There will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. Would you join me in a prayer as we prepare? Father, you have spoken. You've spoken through prophets, through apostles. And in these last days, you've spoken to us by your own Son. All of your revelation given to you, these books that we have of your word, these scriptures, all of them have been given so that we could know you and find life in your Son, our Savior Jesus. So, Lord, this scripture talks explicitly about him. And what we need is to hear from you speaking about him so that our lives are transformed, so that our lives are conformed into his very image. Lord, through the foolishness of preaching, you have chosen to do this. And through a mere man in these moments, you entrusted this word So supernatural work needs to happen that transcends what I do. And I'm asking that you would do that by your Holy Spirit, that you would plant your word in our hearts and that we would be found faithful and that we would delight in the things that you say and that as a result, glory would go to your Son, our Savior Jesus. And we pray it all in his name. Amen. Well, when you uh, turn on the uh, network news, uh, and maybe if you still get a newspaper and you crack that open, or if you open your internet newsreader, uh, I think you'd agree, it's almost always bad news, isn't it? And even, even when there's good news, it's like that gets ignored or it becomes merely a footnote. Earlier this week, we were getting ready for work, Kathy and I, kind of half paying attention to the local news. And they reported, joyfully so, that the COVID hospitalizations in Omaha had taken a sharp turn downward. Well, we were grateful for that news. That was probably one of the last stories of, of the local news, and then it switched to the national news. At the top of the hour, the national news took over, and the lead story was that COVID hospitalizations were at an all-time high, and it was very dangerous. So even the good news uh, that was happening, at least here in Nebraska, well, it didn't even make the national news. It didn't seem to care. Um, they reported as well, of course, about the epic storm and about how many people died. And then they reported that the, even with the vaccine, that there was severe allergic reactions. You know, in the end of the day, I think that there's just so much bad news and, and it's maybe that just sells and bad news gets the lead. Of course, we're always asking, where do we, where do we turn for good news? Politicians? Hmm, not so much. Not many of them have good news to tell us. Maybe they just want to tell us how we can't see our families this Christmas. So it's not very encouraging when we hear what the politicians have to say. Now, when we ask where is the good news, well, we have it right here, right here in the Bible, right here in the Scriptures that we get to focus on every time we meet together. And in particular, at this time of year, we get to focus on how that good news broke through bad news to meet us in our deepest need. So in this, this Bible passage that we read together, the prophet Isaiah acknowledges that, that bad news. That's the darkness. And he shows us, though, what freedom looks like. But most importantly, he, showed us, he shows us who brings that freedom. So that's my simple outline this morning as we unpack this passage of Scripture. Three headings, darkness, the freedom, and the deliverer. But before we're going to focus on the darkness and the freedom, I want to start with the promised deliverer, which means we have to come towards the end of this text of Scripture that we read. I want to give you a little background on the prophet Isaiah. Chapter 1, verse 1 tells us his prophetic ministry spanned the kingships uh, in Judah. Now, that's the southern kingdom, um, so the kingships of Uzziah to Hezekiah. He probably lived early as well into the time of King Manasseh. And if you've read through your Old Testament, you know that he was a a rather evil king, one of the most evil kings in Judah. Uh, Tradition has it that that Manasseh had Isaiah executed by having him sawn in two. It's probably what the writer of Hebrews is referencing in Hebrews 11, verse 37. So what we can say is that this prophet... Was wrote during uh, well the writings of this prophet was between 750 and 700 BC. That's just a little bit of a background. 750 to 700 years before what we would call the Common Era. So as we look at this passage of scripture, I want to start by by focusing on the deliverer, the deliverer. Now I think we'd all agree that significant events in history have often hinged on the presence of a unique leader for good or evil. Uh, in the history of this nation, we can think of Washington or Lincoln or Eisenhower. Great Britain, you have Churchill. But you can also have powerful and, and charismatic leaders who lead, who lead people into unspeakable evil and destruction. Jim Jones, David Koresh, and the top of the list of evil, evil leaders, Adolf Hitler. Profoundly charismatic in leading people, but leading in them to profound evil. But whether by word or deed, people look to leaders to deliver them from what they perceive is darkness, whether that darkness is real or imagined. So we ask the question as we look at the prophet Isaiah, who is the light? How does this prophet describe this leader, this deliverer who will bring true freedom, the one who will dispel the darkness once and for all? And as he tells us in verse 6, it begins with the gift of a child. A child who would, of course, become a man. Look at verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The son is given. Those words are important. See, every son, of course, is born. But not every son is given. What, What I take it that the prophet means here is that this child will not be of merely human intention or plan, this child is given, this son is given from above. uh, Through this this prophet, the Lord is making clear that he intends to fulfill the promise that he had made centuries before to King David of a a future king who would be an eternal king. Look at verse 7. The description of this child, this son who is given, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, I want to take you back to that promise that was made by David, just so that you see where it's anchored in the Scripture. We find this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. The setting of, of this prophetic word about David's own offspring, David was seeking to build a temple, a permanent place of worship for the people of God. They had had the movable tabernacle. Prophet Nathan came to him and said, do what's in your heart. But then he came back to him and said, you know what, you're you're not going to do this. You're, You're a man of blood. The Lord said, your son, after you will do this. But mixed into the prophetic word about a son who will build the temple, the Lord gives this wonderful, glorious promise. He says through the prophet to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now just look through history. Think of all of the, the greatest dynasties, king kingly dynasties and kingdoms so i looked it up i was just curious what's the longest human dynasty and it's in a bulgarian dynasty lasting 2890 years back in the before common era beginning and early into the about the 700s of of the common era that's a long dynasty but then it ended There hasn't been a dynasty that would last forever, but the Lord made the promise through David that there would be a unique offspring from David and his kingdom would never end. Here in Isaiah, we have one of the clearest descriptions of what this king would be like, verse 6. This eternal king, this forever king, confirming that he will rule as king and the government shall be upon his shoulder. He will have all authority. He will lead. But more than that, and more than that could be, ever be said about any other king there ever was. And here's where the key is to his uniqueness. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Well, we could stop there and think, okay, he's a great counselor. But no, these are, these are more profound descriptors. And then he says... Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, when when the prophet says his name shall be called, he means that this is his reputation, this is his essence, this is his nature. These descriptive titles would, would never be applied to David or Solomon or Hezekiah or any earthly king. No, this child from above would be like no other king that ever was. And once he assumed the throne it would never, ever, ever, ever be relinquished. He would never die, and his throne would be everlasting and life-giving. And this king you know is Jesus. This king is the divine Son of God who was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary A merely human being, Mary, but divinely conceived in her, given from above, confirmed as well, as we read the story in the Gospels, confirmed to Joseph by the angel. And so while God the Father confirmed this truth to Mary before Jesus was born, he confirmed it as well to shepherds, as Josh shared in the the children's moment, he confirmed it to shepherds nearby in the night of Jesus' birth, who heard and saw that thunderous announcement from a heavenly host of angels. God confirmed it to Simeon and Anna at the temple shortly after Jesus was born when he was presented there. That's Luke 2. And within a couple of years, God confirmed the same truth to some pagan stargazers as they presented Jesus' gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This child is Jesus. He was given from above. As Jesus described in his, in his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus said to him, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, this Jesus is our deliverer king. He has given us, God has given us his son. And the greatest enemy, the ultimate enemy that we need to be delivered from is death itself, and Jesus is the one who accomplishes that. Well, second, we move to from the deliverer to the darkness, the context into which the deliverer comes. The darkness Now, more than the absence of light, we, I think we get this. Darkness is a, is a metaphor for evil and the suffering that it brings. I know some people would say that we're at present living in dark times. Uh, I, looked, I saw this quote. Uh, Rick Bright, he is the uh, former Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. He was the, the director. He was quoted this way. He says this. This is fairly recent. I fear the pandemic will get far worse and be prolonged, causing the unprecedented illness and fatalities. Without better planning, 2020 could be the darkest winter in modern history. Bright describes darkness as that of suffering and fatalities. Now if we think of the context of the prophet speaking, Prophet Isaiah speaking this, this word, Israel had experienced suffering and fatalities. He generalizes about that in verse 1. Verse 1 says, "No gloom for her who is in anguish." So he's speaking of a better time, right? But the reality is there. Gloom, anguish. In the former time, he brought into content the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So what is this gloom, this anguish, this, this contempt that Isaiah is talking about? Now, this, this region, um, Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, this is the same region where Jesus did much of his ministry. This is the region where he fed the 5,000. But Zebulun and Naphtali and the region around the Sea of Galilee to the east of the Jordan They were part of what was taken over by Assyrians in the year 732 B.C. And this is during Isaiah's ministry. And I'll read to you the the context. Because what had happened was, after the reign of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel, the United Kingdom was divided into two. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. Judah and Benjamin together formed the southern kingdom. And the rest of the ten tribes were part of the northern kingdom called Israel. They were divided. And in the days of Pekah, king of Israel, it tells us in Second Kings 1529, Tiglath, Pelesur, king of Assyria, came and captured Ijon, Ebelbeth, Makkah, Genoa, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, and all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. That was a dark time. And so this is what the prophet's referring to. And this was a consequence of the northern kingdom. It was a consequence of their own rebellion and idolatry. After that united kingdom of Israel was divided, as I said, into Judah in the south and, and Israel in the north, the northern kingdom was led primarily by evil kings who led them into increasing wickedness and idolatry. They abandoned the law of God. But that same horror that befell the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom toyed with it too. The people, verse 2, Isaiah says, were walking in darkness, walking in darkness. So he references the northern kingdom and what was taken over by the Assyrians, but that darkness pervaded the south as well. It pervaded Judah. And why were they walking in darkness? Well, we can just recount, at least through the ministry of Isaiah, as he was, his prophetic ministry. At the, at the tail end of King Uzziah, Uzziah died about five years into uh, once Uzziah came on the scene. Uzziah died. Uzziah was a righteous king, but he was presumptuous. Uh, the scriptures tell us that he entered the temple, uh, going where only priests should go, and, and the Lord afflicted him with leprosy. But generally speaking, he was a righteous king, and he left a huge void for Judah he was followed by Jotham. Jotham was a righteous king, but the scriptures tell us that that the people continued to carry on with corrupt practices or maybe re-engaged, and those corrupt practices would have been idolatry. So I take it that Jotham was somewhat of an ineffective king, at least at curbing the spread of evil. So in himself, righteous, but unable to to, uh, steer the kingdom of Judah towards the Lord. Jotham was followed by Ahaz. Ahaz, the scriptures tell us, was an evil king. He worshipped Baal. He even offered up his own sons as human sacrifices to false gods. He was a horrible, horrible king. And because of his evil ways, the Lord gave him into the hand of the king of Syria, brought many Israelites who had been living in Judah, carried them off to Damascus. As part of that judgment against Ahaz, the Lord allowed the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, before they had been overrun by the Assyrians, to prevail over him and kill 120,000 of his fighting troops. And because of that, Ahaz then made an alliance with Assyria, which ultimately led to the downfall of the northern kingdom. And it resulted in Ahaz himself and the whole kingdom of Judah becoming a vassal to the Assyrians' But get this, it, it, it wasn't as if he was a reluctant vassal because Ahaz was so enthralled with the Assyrians that he copted, copied their, their idolatrous practices and brought them into the very temple of God in Jerusalem. Yeah, they were walking in darkness. But here's the thing as we look through this, the history of this, the darkness didn't happen to the kingdom of Judah. They invited it. They invited it in by not trusting in the Lord. Rather, they put their trust in the wrong places. They 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 turned to false gods. The people under Jotham and, and Ahaz, they turned to false gods. Or they turned to foreign godless kings. King Ahaz, making that alliance with Assyria. Or they trusted even in themselves. Isaiah says later in 22, In that day, you looked at the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many, you collected the waters of the lower pool and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water in the old pool. So they were taking this defensive action, but here's what the Lord says But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. You didn't look to the Lord. You took all of this action, but you didn't look to the Lord. As we think about our lives today, I agree with immunologist Rick Bright that for many people in the world, it is a dark time. But it's a dark time not because of the pandemic, not because of racial unrest, not because of political turmoil. The darkness is not what happens to people, it's not what's outside of us. The darkness is what happens in people. Now, maybe you're experiencing that darkness this morning. And maybe you'd count that darkness being your own suffering from disease. Maybe that darkness is a sort of a profound loneliness because you recently lost a spouse or a child or you're estranged from a family member and especially poignant during this time of year. Maybe that darkness is, is your own battle against addiction. Maybe that darkness is something that you have not even shared with anyone. And you're feeling that darkness. The good news, the good news is that God is light. John 1 5 it says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And understand whatever darkness is in you, it's there because of sin. I'm not saying your spouse died because of your sin. I'm not saying you lost your child because of your sin. But there is sin in the world and we have all contributed to it. So whatever darkness we feel inside or outside we all have a little piece of it don't we? We have all rebelled against a holy God. We have all rejected His authority in some way shape or form in our own lives. Our Natural inclination is darkness. And we desperately need a deliverer in Jesus. Jesus said this this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We have to understand this. Again, we may be tempted to look around us and see all of the evil and blame and just think that the solution is 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 something something that's like the right politician, the right policy. Evil works, evil deeds, that flow, those are things that flow from evil hearts. And any darkness that is outside of us is because it began within. It begins begins with the corrupted human heart. So so be reminded that the answer to the ills around us are not the politician or the the technological breakthrough. The cure for the weary world, the good news for the world in darkness has to come from outside. The world is in darkness and into this darkness good news breaks in. So let me ask you are you living in darkness this morning do you feel the oppression of darkness this morning based on what the prophet says what we need to do what you need to do is look to jesus yes he was born as a child in a manger in a in a feeding trough but he grew to be a man he lived sinlessly He died unjustly for sins that he never committed. And when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, that's the answer to the darkness. So for all who put their faith in Christ, that darkness in you, that sin, was buried in the tomb when he was buried in the tomb and when he emerged from that tomb he left that darkness there so that you could be free from it put your faith in christ today well third there's the freedom we have the deliverer who comes in the midst of our darkness to deliver us and give us freedom now, it's it's hard for most of us to imagine the kind of government tyranny that people experienced in the Soviet Union. I don't know anybody here who grew up in that. You'd have to be older. Um, some, perhaps, have experienced that kind of tyranny living in China. And it may feel like some of our own freedoms are being tested but generally speaking, and we're here this morning, brothers and sisters, we still worship when, when we want and with whom we want. We still buy and sell with little restrictions. And when we think about the ancient Israelites, they, they gained their national identity as people who were oppressed. And it began effectively with the oppression by their overlords in Egypt. They were then rescued by God. They were given freedom. And God took them on a journey over hundreds of years, patiently waiting and enduring their rebellion to eventually give them a land of their own. And while they did enjoy times of peace and prosperity and relative freedom under King David and King Solomon and other righteous kings, that freedom, if you read through the history of Israel and Judah, it proved to be fragile, quite fragile. Much of their history is a story of threats from other nations and them trying to break free from bondage and enjoy the good land and blessings that God had promised them. But what was God's ultimate plan for his people? Was it enough that they just had a piece of property? Or did God want something more? And how do those promises come to us today? Was, and in the mind of many, perhaps, they were thinking, well, if we could just get back to the time of King David, that would be great. But, but really, was the time of King David God's best? Now, at the point where, where the prophet Isaiah declares this word, we have to know that in the unfolding of history, the darkest days for the nation of Israel were still ahead of them. Within 150 years of this time, the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar would overrun the kingdom of Judah. They would destroy the temple, raise it to the ground. They would kill or deport many citizens. So for the people of God, what would true freedom look like? Isaiah gives a picture of that freedom. Now for Matthew, the gospel writer, that connection, is obvious. In Matthew chapter 4, this is one of the benefits of reading through the scriptures. You see these connections between the Old and New Testament. Matthew chapter 4, gospel writer Matthew there describes the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He says this, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And here he quotes from Isaiah 9 the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Freedom, freedom began with repentance. And looking to Christ. Jesus' presence, Jesus' ministry, his message meant freedom for his people. So when we look back in in, in Isaiah 9, that glorious way of the sea, that's Jesus. Verse 2: They have seen a great light. Who is that? Jesus. On they have seen that great light, on them the light has shone. Who is that? Light, that is Jesus. And the light results in this freedom and prosperity like never before. And again, the prophet using terms that would, would uh, put the focus on the land, but the fulfillment of this is far greater than just the land. But he says this in verse 3, Zion verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoiced before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they were glad when they divide the spoil. That decimation caused by oppressors, the deportations, the slaughters by foreign invaders, all of that reversed, and the nation multiplied. Joy and gladness for prosperity and abundance. And how was that fulfilled in Christ? They didn't get a piece of property back. No, in a much greater way. Their joy and gladness was multiplied as more and more people came to understand their need for a Savior in Jesus. It was hinted at as the crowds began to follow him in his ministry, as he healed the sick and raised the dead and fed multitudes of people. But it was realized in a more profound way after Jesus was crucified and buried and raised again. And as the apostles and other believers in Jesus came to realize, their hope wasn't in a piece of land. It was in the very kingdom of God. First of all, the kingship of Jesus planted in their very hearts. And then the promise of his return when the entire world would come under his rule and authority. The prophet speaks of this, this gives us a picture of what this looks like. Speaking of the oppressor, He says this, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And just so it would be clear how this oppression would be broken, he likens it to the day of Midian. And that's a reference here in verse four of our text. Probably a reference to Gideon. And if you know the story of Gideon in Judges, God gave him victory over the Midianites. Judges six, seven. He gave him victory with this tiny little Small fighting force. So in the end, the victory was accomplished through the Lord. And Gideon would, would only have to say that the Lord did it. It's clear. This is something that God would do. The freedom that God alone could give. He says in verse 5, Chapter 9, verse 5, back in our text. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So what he's saying there is that every impediment of war, even down to the very garments used for battle, would be good for nothing except for fuel for the fire, never to be needed again. You see, this freedom from the sun is permanent. Never to be threatened See, the freedom that the Israelites enjoyed for those short periods of time, if you read through the judges, they cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up a judge. 30, 40, 50 years. And then they started in their hearts to turn back to their evil ways. And the oppressors came in again. The Lord raised up another judge. When they finally possessed the land under the king's, well, Same thing, righteous king, always fighting, always battling. Then the king would turn away, and then the people would turn away. They turn to idols, and the oppressors would come in again. The battle in Christ is over. That doesn't mean doesn't mean we don't do battle with sin. That's not the point. But we have a in Christ. We have a permanent. Freedom with God. And though on our daily basis we fight battles against oppressors' sin in our own hearts, if you are in Christ today, you have a permanent place in His kingdom. That can't be taken away from you. It cannot be taken away from you. If you've trusted in Christ today, this is what Jesus says about you there's no more slave master. John 8, Jesus said this, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Indeed, never to be enslaved again because Christ has come the Apostle Paul, and this, this is speaking to the battle that we faced every day, brothers and sisters, because we still have to do battle against sin. And even though the victory is won, even though we have a permanent place in the family of God and the kingdom of God, which will finally and fully be realized when Christ himself returns, we live in light of the fact that we have been made free. The Apostle Paul says this, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And here's the exhortation. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. See, while we have been guaranteed freedom by our deliverer, an exit from the darkness, a a light that has come to to, to free us from bondage, until Christ returns, we spend our lives learning to live in light of light. We spend our lives learning to trust more in what Christ has accomplished and let go of the things that are corrupt and to tell the evil oppressor the very sin that remains in our hearts, you have no claim on me because Christ has set us free. So let me ask you, Christian brother or sister, are you feeling the warmth of his light? Do you feel the freedom that has been purchased for you because Christ has come? And if right now you're feeling some measure of bondage, some measure of of oppression, it's a new day. And you can simply bring that to Christ Himself by confessing it. First John 1 9 says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse from all unrighteousness. And you know why Jesus can forgive? Because he already went to the cross for you. The price is paid. Your confession is simply a reminder to yourself that Jesus paid it all. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery if you felt the warmth of his light. I know, I know that gratitude and joy is what overflows in your heart. Well, the other day, uh, again on the morning news, I, I saw the, the host of this, this news program invited a panel of, of religious leaders. Uh, there was a Jewish rabbi, an Episcopal bishop, and an imam on the show. Now, I think they do this kind of thing every year. They want to feel some sort of spiritual connection with their audience. Um, anyway, these religious leaders were, were brought into a discussion to discuss how faith, however they defined it, would help people respond to darkness in the world. And that's why I listened up. I thought, oh, well, that's, that's interesting. I wonder what they're going to say. Anyway, the, the rabbi was first to answer, and she, she had an answer. And her answer was this. Find the light within. And I said to Kathy, I said, oh, I'm going to use that (laughs) because it's just so dead wrong. There's no light within. It's a mass delusion foisted on the world by the evil one when people see darkness around us and and everybody agrees. These are tough times. Well, just find the light within. It's a hopeless message. And even when Christ comes at Bethlehem, the Son, the one on whom is the government the one who takes up the eternal throne of David, even when he is revealed to us, the world says, look for light within. There's no light within. It's a mass delusion. The answer to the darkness inside of us is a light that is outside of us, a light from above, the light of Christ himself. O holy night, I was reminded of these words. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morning. There is a weary world that is so desperate for good news. And we, the people of God, we see who that light is for the darkness. So brothers and sisters, it's a glorious morn. Every day in Christ is a glorious morn. And if you're tempted to feel overwhelmed by darkness like I am, be reminded of the light of Christ. Jesus, our deliverer, dispels the darkness in us and gives us freedom in him forevermore so so trust him if you haven't trust him today, worship him and build your life around him and that's good news for the world and for each one of us let's pray, Father, we thank you for Christ, who is our life. Thank you for the light, thank you for the deliverance that he gives to us in and that he reveals the darkness in our souls, but, but he buries that darkness in his own tomb and gives us eternal freedom in him. So Lord, keep us faithful. And whatever's going on around us, whatever darkness we may feel, put our minds back to the Lord Jesus himself. And as we encounter others who may be feeling that darkness, putting their hope in light within or putting their hope in, in just finding ways to celebrate and being frivolous. Lord, would you give us the utterance to speak of the light of Jesus, the only thing that will last forever. Lord Jesus, we look forward to your, your return. So keep us faithful to that day. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen.